Hey, have you heard? We're two weeks away from the OB Guide Intern Challenge. Yeah, I know. And um, I am definitely already getting those text messages as per your request to try and um, make sure that we're troubleshooting and getting everything done before the deadline um, when uh, our incoming interns can join. So before April 30th, head over to the OBGYN Intern Challenge website. Really easy, obginternchallenge.com. There's a big button that says enroll now. And if you are a rising intern, you can sign up for this amazing study. We're going to get a podcast delivered to your phone via text message every single day with some reviews and some questions. Faye, have you heard with the OBG project that they now have this thing called the core? This curriculum is absolutely free to all residents, so even if you're not a chief resident where you can get OBG first, the premium product for absolutely free, you can still benefit from the awesome stuff at the OBG project by signing up for the core. Back with us, Dr. Marima Ruhotina, who is a um, first-year fellow in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery at Yale New Haven, um, and she is coming back to us today to talk about the Yikes, second part in our laparoscopic so head on over to our website, so welcome back, Mary. Check out the sidebar. You can find out more about OBG first as well as the core there. All right, guys. Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Kriag's. Over, over coffee. coffee. All right. Today we are fortunate to have with us uh, one of our co-residents from Brown, but now a fellow in minimally invasive gynecologic surgery at Yale New Haven Hospital System, Dr. Mary Ruhotina. Welcome to the podcast, Mary. Thank you, guys. I'm so happy to be here and honored. Thanks for joining us, Mary. Can you talk to us a little bit about the learning objectives for this laparoscopy surgical series and also what we'll focus on today in part one? Absolutely. So this series is going to go through a lot of basics of laparoscopic surgery. It'll go basically from, you know, what kind of patients do you select for surgery? How do you actually enter the abdomen for laparoscopic surgery. And then we'll range to topics such as energy sources, so understanding monopolar and bipolar uh, energy. And then also we'll discuss abdominal anatomy and then complications related to surgery. Our first part is going to focus on looking at that preoperative evaluation and understanding some considerations to look at for patients who are undergoing laparoscopic surgery. We're going to talk about patient positioning and understanding what is the best way to position patients for laparoscopic surgery to reduce nerve injury. We're going to talk about the basics of an operating room setup for laparoscopic surgery. And then ultimately, we'll finish off with talking about abdominal access during laparoscopic surgery and different techniques and kind of considerations to think about with all of those. It's going to be great. Yeah, we're getting a basically a MIGS fellowship here and a couple of podcasts. So can't wait to get started. I guess, Mary, to start, you know, Faye and I now only operate through laparotomy um, with all of the advantages that that affords. But what exactly is the point or the advantage of laparoscopy? Yeah, absolutely. That's a good question. So what we have found from many years of 
data collection is that laparoscopic surgery results in decreased wound and abdominal wall infections, and a decreased febrile morbidity, urinary tract infections, post-operative complications for patients, and also reduced post-operative pain for patients. And we also know that patients who undergo laparoscopic surgery have less days in the hospital, and then their total cost of medical care is decreased compared to laparotomy. So there's a lot of good things you guys are missing out on. <laughs> there are. I also wanted to ask, though, are there contraindications to laparoscopic surgery? And what are those? Yeah, it's, you know, there are very few absolute contraindications. Um, and that includes the patient's inability to tolerate laparotomy. That's going to preclude them from having laparoscopic surgery as well. If a patient is in hypovolemic shock, um, if the surgeon doesn't have the proper experience or the proper tools to perform laparoscopy, or if there is a lack of instrument support for laparoscopic surgery. So there's really not that many absolute contraindications for laparoscopic surgery. Super. So let's, I guess, start off in the pre-op setting. Um, a couple of weeks back, we did a little podcast on evidence-based GYN surgery and talked somewhat about preoperative evaluation, but we talked kind of just generally speaking, GYN surgery in general. What do we need to know particularly about preoperative evaluations for patients who are planning to undergo a laparoscopic procedure? Yeah, and this might overlap a little bit with your previous podcast, but you know, in general, you need to consider the patient's medical comorbidities. So this is particularly focusing on patients and the, the impact of their comorbidities on hemostasis and their ability to tolerate surgery. So you need to ask the question, will the patient be able to tolerate the increased intra-abdominal pressure due to pneumoperitoneum, in addition to tolerating the Trendelenburg positioning that is very common for laparoscopic surgery? So that's one of the things you have to consider when you're evaluating the patient's medical comorbidities. Additionally, you need to think about risk factors for adhesive disease, um, or if the patient had previous umbilical or ventral hernia repair. The reason why you need to think of that is that may influence the site of laparoscopic access and then potentially increase complications related to laparoscopic entry. And we'll talk a little bit about why that's really important to consider later on. And then as you guys have talked about in your previous podcast, you know, you need to do appropriate preoperative testing for patients. And I always just, you know, plug in a reminder, don't forget that pregnancy test for all those reproductive age women. In terms of antibiotic prophylaxis and thromboprophylaxis, we can have a whole separate podcast about this. And I know that you have had podcasts about this in the past. I would just say, you know, refer to the practice bulletins that are available in terms of finding those specific uh, pieces of information. Otherwise, you know, we could spend our whole uh, podcast just focusing on that. And then the interesting last portion that I think we should consider in pre-op evaluation is, does the patient require a bowel preparation prior to their surgery? And what we found for most part um, is that for benign gynecologic procedures, a bowel preparation is no longer a standard of care and is not standard practice. It, the studies show that it doesn't reduce the risk of surgical site infection or anastomotic leak. There is a specific patient population to consider bowel preparation for, um, and that's if you have a patient that you do anticipate that you're going to have a potential bowel injury. For example, if someone has advanced deep infiltrating endometriosis or you're staging someone for a gynecologic malignancy. But that's kind of the general gist of pre-op evaluation that you can consider for laparoscopic surgery. 
Let's talk a little bit now about positioning because I remember, you know, it's been almost a year now, but back in residency, we worried a lot about positioning patients during laparoscopic surgery. So how are they positioned? What do we have to worry about? You know, why is positioning so important? Yeah, absolutely. We cannot stress enough about the importance of patient positioning during laparoscopic surgery, really during any type of surgery. If you do not take care to provide the appropriate positioning that you are putting the patient at risk for neurological injury. And also, in addition to thinking about neurological injury for patients, you also have to think about the ergonomics of the surgeon and how you can position the patient in the best way so that the surgeon can actually complete their procedure. Um, so majority of laparoscopic cases, uh, patients are placed in dorsal lithotomy position with their arms tucked. Um, this way, the surgeon has the best access to the operative field, and we're minimizing those potential injuries for patients. If you look, the incidence of peripheral nerve injury for patients during GYN surgery is about 1.5 to 11 percent. And the risk factors for persistent motor neuropathy include greater than four hours in lithotomy position, extremes of body weight, older age, smoking, hypertension, and diabetes. So just something to also keep in mind when you're thinking about that patient and you're undergoing surgery for them. Let's talk more specifically about positioning techniques. For instance, like I think in a C-section, all we do now is like, you know, they're basically supine and whether you believe in the bump or not as part of the evidence, then like that's going to be there. But there's not a lot of nuance to that. Talk to us a little bit, you know, because these patients are anesthetized. Obviously, they're not going to be able to tell you if they're uncomfortable or if something's up. Like what are the best practices and what are the common things that we would see in positioning for laparoscopic surgery? Yeah, it's a great question. So the first thing we can start off is with the arm tuck. So when you tuck the patient's arms, you want their palms facing toward the lateral thighs with padding protecting the posterior medial, medial aspect of the elbows, wrists, and hands. Um, it's pretty uncommon to have patient's arms out for laparoscopic surgery, but if you do have the patient's arms out, you need to ensure that they're not abducted greater than 90 degrees as this can increase uh, brachial plexus nerve injury. Um, in terms of the legs, the patient's legs are placed in dorsal lithotomy, usually in booted uh, stirrups like Allen-type stirrups. And there are common nerves that we do think about when we place patients in dorsal lithotomy position. So, for example, we think about the femoral nerve, the obturator nerve. And then ultimately the sciatic will divide in the common perineal and tibial nerves. And those are things that we need to keep in mind as we're placing patients in dorsal lithotomy. Mary, talk to us a little bit about what happens with injuries to those nerves. And then maybe, you know, also because most of the time I feel like when we were doing GYN surgery, we placed everybody into Trendelenburg. So talk about, you know, some of the injuries that can happen. How do we know those injuries can happen? And also what are some of the side effects of putting somebody, for example, into a really steep Trendelenburg? Yeah, of course. So looking at the femoral nerve um, first, the common site of injury for the femoral nerve is compression beneath the inguinal ligament in the thin lithotomy position. And this can be caused by excessive abduction or lateral rotation or hyperflexion of the hip. Um, and when you have a patient who has a femoral nerve injury, you may see the patient has the inability to flex at the hip 
or extend at the knee. They may have an absent patellar reflex. And then classically, what you might see also in our CREOG um, exams, you might have a patient who has the knee buckling when attempting to ambulate um, in the post-op period. Remember the femoral nerve also can have sensory deficits. And so you might have loss of sensation over the anterior thigh. In terms of the obturator nerve, common site of injury during surgery is during a pelvic lymph node dissection or placement of paravaginal sutures. When you have an obturator nerve injury, again, a very commonly tested subject that we have on our CREOG exams, you will have the inability to adduct the thigh. So commonly, you'll hear people say that the patient could not ride a horse, for example. In terms of our sciatic nerve, when it divides into the tibial nerve, um, that site of injury is when the leg is compressed um, against the yellow fins, especially the posterior part of the leg. And you can have weakened uh, plantar flexion with that. And then lastly, the perineal nerve. Again, it's the compression of the leg against the stirrup, specifically between the fibula and the stirrup itself. And so with that, what you could have is a common manifestation of foot drop and foot inversion. And I would you know, keep these in mind, obviously, for importance of patient positioning, but they are commonly tested for our CREOG exams and beyond in our written exams too. In terms of Trendelenburg positioning, so this is really important to consider because patients, especially for lengthy surgeries, can be in Trendelenburg for three to four hours at a time. So physiologically, Trendelenburg can cause uh, greater cardiovascular and pulmonary changes compared to the supine positioning that you're having for cases for laparotomy, for example. So in terms of cardiovascular changes, you're going to have increased venous return, you have increased um, central blood volume and mean arterial uh, pressure. So for young patients, they can tolerate these changes pretty well, but you need to consider the patients with cardiac disease that they can have cardiovascular compromise during this position. For pulmonary changes, you have the abdominal viscera against the diaphragm, which is gonna decrease the functional residual capacity and the pulmonary compliance and may cause atelectasis for patients. And then also obviously thinking about the patient's head, you can have intracranial pressure increases. Um, and you wanna make sure that if a patient has known intracranial hypertension, that this patient probably will not be able to tolerate Trendelenburg. And the same thing, you're gonna have increased uh, intraocular pressure. And the lastly, the really important thing to consider is different institutions are going to have different um, methods to prevent patients from moving in Trendelenburg position, whether that's like an egg crate foam beneath the patient or a vacuum beanbag mattress. Um, you can also use shoulder braces, but it's something to consider when a patient is in steep Trendelenburg that the shoulder braces can actually contribute to brachial plexus injury. So just a side note to think about. That was superb. Kind of a nice segue too into the next question we wanted to talk to you about, um, which is less about patient positioning and more about the rest of the operating room. Laparoscopic surgery, I think, unlike laparotomy, has like a lot of weird setup considerations from, you know, surgical or surgeon ergonomics to patient positioning to like all of that extra equipment that's got to be in the room and where the monitors go and where everything else is going to be. Can you talk with us a little bit about some of the considerations for OR setup um, or any tips that you might have us consider? 
You mentioned an important piece there. There are a lot of moving parts of laparoscopic surgery that you need to consider. And so before you start your surgery, you want to make sure that all of the operating room setup is exactly the way that you want it, that everything is functioning appropriately. Because once you start your surgery, from abdominal access, like we're going to talk about, you can have complications. So you need to be as prepared as possible. Um, in the outline that, I, that I'm giving you guys, there is a nice diagram that kind of portrays how this operating room setup should look like. Um, so the monitors and other instruments in, in general are going to be positioned around the patient. You need to make sure that the insufflator is visible to the surgeons and the assistants. And it's really interesting. They've done a lot of research about work-related musculoskeletal disorders, specifically for uh, surgeons who are doing laparoscopic surgery. And that they noted that for gynecologic oncologists, 88% reported pain as a result of performing laparoscopic surgery with improper positioning. And only close to 30% of those sought treatment. So the next part about positioning for the table and the monitor is really important to consider because this does have implications outside of the operating room for surgeons. So for example, table positioning. So you want the table to be at level positioning to start the case, very important to consider. And we'll talk about that a little bit when we talk about varies entry and why you want the table to be level. You want the table height to allow for relaxed arm positioning for all operators. The arms should technically be at less than 30 degree angle from the trunk. And then elbows should be flexed about 60 to 120 degrees and the wrists pronated. For video positioning, you want to have two monitors at the foot of the bed and they're facing each of the surgeons. And the height of the monitors should be at or about 15 degrees below eye level to decrease neck strain for the surgeon. And then also a distance should be about 60 centimeters away. I know these are all really very specific things, but you will notice that people in the operating room take great care to ensure that all of these things are set up appropriately before starting. And then in terms of instrumentation, so there's a lot of variety and a lot of nuances of laparoscopic instruments. Basically, most instruments that you can have during laparotomy are available now for laparoscopic surgery. Some of the key things to think about are your laparoscopes. So that can range from 2 millimeter to 10 millimeter scopes and they can have different degrees. So zero degree scopes are best in the pelvis um, or high in the mediastinum where you're working in line with the scope, or you can have a 30 or 45 degree scope, which allows for more flexibility or versatility. Sometimes you may see surgeons use these higher degree scopes when they have a very large uterus that they're trying to work around so that they can um, visualize things better because of the size of the uterus. One common thing that comes up a lot is the fogging of the camera. So this is due to a difference in the temperature of the room and the peritoneal cavity. And so you might see a FRED anti-fog solution, or you can immerse the uh, camera in hot water or an insulated bottle, just some techniques to think about. And then you also want to make sure that your insufflation system and your gas supply are ready and hooked up and set to go for your surgery. So those are just some basics to consider. But it is important to know that the way you set up your room has implications for your surgery, but then also has implications for the surgeons after they're done with their procedures. And speaking of that, I just sat up straighter to save my own back. <laughs> 
So let's move on now, Mary, because I know you had referenced that you wanted to talk about abdominal entry. So let's move on to that. Let's talk about, you know, what's the best way to enter the abdomen to reduce risk of injury and then the different techniques for abdominal entry too. Absolutely. Um, So before we start a laparoscopic procedure, you need to gain access to the peritoneal cavity and establish pneumoperitoneum. Um, So a couple of things just to keep in mind before you're even entering into the abdomen, you want to decompress the stomach or bladder to minimize the likelihood of bowel or bladder injury, depending on where your entry point is. Additionally, I think a really important thing to consider is that surgeons should really adhere to the technique that they have the most experience in, but they should be familiar with alternative techniques. Um, The surgeon preference and experience plays a very big role in minimizing the risk of injury. And just also to consider each technique should be used selectively depending on what is the purpose of the surgery, the the intended function of the port, um, what is the port location, what are the patient factors that may influence how you're entering the abdomen. For example, like if someone has a prior history of abdominal surgeries or if someone's body habitus may influence that. So these are factors to keep Um, keep in mind, you know, they've done a lot of systematic reviews about abdominal access for laparoscopic surgery. And basically the reviews have concluded that there's no evidence that one approach is superior to another and that the choice is best determined by the clinical scenario and then the skill set that the surgeon themselves has. So we're going to dive into an open technique approach, which is commonly known as the Hassan approach. And then closed technique will include uh, the varies using a visual entry port or direct trocar entry. All right. Well, so we've talked so far about a lot of the setup for laparoscopic surgery. Um, and I think that's the time that we have for today. Um, next time, Mary, we'll get into abdominal access because I bet that's what a lot of our listeners are really going to want to know about getting into some of the evidence behind that. Absolutely. And that's where the good stuff starts. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Kriags Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go on to iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, or if you love the show, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Send us some love, we'll send you some swag. We'll have show notes for this show and every other show on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Finally, if you have a correction for today's episode, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.